Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 183 for February 12th, 2009, Modes of Encryption. Security Now is brought to you by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. And by GoToMeeting. Stop wasting time and money on meeting in person. Hold your meetings online. You can do more and travel less. For a free trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all your security needs. Privacy, online security, encryption. Here's the man who put it all together, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Good morning, Leo. Let's do a podcast. Let's what do. You it's a beautiful day. Let's do two. It's a beautiful day for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it always is because we're inside, actually. In the <laughs> yeah, and I've got all the windows closed, so I don't even know day or night. It's like Las Vegas in here. <laughs> what was it I heard happening during? I picked up a little bit of it during MacBreak Weekly. Some some modifications you're making to the structure or something. The structure. Did something fall down? You had to post a bond. What? I probably was joking around. Did we? Post, oh, okay. Did we have to post a bond. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> kind of like some modifications made to the cottage. Anything about? Oh, that? I was joking around with the Gizwiz that we'd move the cottage six inches to the left. That's what it was. It was yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Was it joke. was. It was while we were. I was watching the uh, the playback of, of yeah, Gizwiz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just joking around. Oh, okay. <laughs> Never believe anything you hear on the Gizwiz. Oh, it's all, no, it's all pretty much made something. up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about encryption. Once again, it's a, obviously a continuing uh, topic because it's hard to argue that there's anything much more important to security than issues of encryption. We're heading toward a podcast where we're going to really clearly, thoroughly discuss the number one most used encryption protocol, I mean, like that there is, that all of us use, which is SSL. And I had said, that I was going to, this week we were going to talk about so-called keyed hashing algorithms, but in laying that out and sort of getting it like put together, I realized, wait a minute, you know, there's something, there's a little bit more foundational stuff we need that leads into that, that we really need to cover first. And that is also necessary for discussing SSL protocol. So this is this. I guess the title of this week's would be Modes of Encryption, which is something we've touched on a little bit, but never really talked about. And we and there's also so much security news this week that I thought if I tried to cram all that into one, it would just you know yeah. I don't know people would would fall off. I mean they'd get to work and and still have podcasts left. They'd fall <laughs> off their stair climbers. They you know it would just be going too long. You're so. doing this for our protection. Uh, I, I always have our listeners in mind. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I, sometimes I find that it's a, there's a lot to digest in a show, and uh, and uh, that that ball you're bouncing on would, would end up deflating by the time. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but that's why, you know, the transcripts are great and people, you know, it's a podcast. You can go back and listen again and again. And this show, especially, even though we do cover security news and so forth, most of the content is really timeless. Um, and today's will be a good example. You know, the, 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 yep. the topics we're going to talk about are things you'll need to know about uh, this stuff for a long time to come. Let's, before we get going, I know there's some uh, rata and there's some security Tons. news. Tons. And I think uh, Tuesday was a uh, patch Tuesday. I don't know. I didn't see any patch patches, though. Oh, so. baby. That's where a lot of it comes oh, from. Oh, yep. all right. Well, we'll talk Lots about that in just a second. But I do want to mention the folks at Nerds On Site, our fine sponsors. They've been with us for a long time. Nerds On Site, they're the great folks who do the, you know, you see them driving around if you're in Vancouver or Toronto or actually they're in countries all over the world. And you see those uh, little Nerds On Site Volkswagens going around. That's them. Nerds on site. Well, I want to be a nerd.com is the website. They're a team of IT professionals and they are growing and they need you. They want you. Whether you're a PC or Mac expert, if you've got a specialty like Cisco or Oracle, you name it, they need it. Fix it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, even sales, even trainers, security experts, antivirus gurus, especially especially those nerds who are solution-focused in today's small and medium-sized enterprises, the SME market. It is, with the economy right now, it's pretty much the only, the last growing market. Nerds are independent contractors. I'm not saying you're going to go to work for somebody. You still work for yourself, but not by yourself. You focus on the things you love doing, not the burdens of running a business. Nerds on site also helps you train, hone your competencies, hone your skills with their university of nerdology. They and And if you... Get stuck. There's always another nerd you can bring in if it's time to do something that's outside your your uh, your competency. You can get other nerds to help you. They're all over the world. As I said, Canada, that's where they started. They're also in the U.S., in Mexico, in England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, even India now. That's, that's, that's the success story that is nerds on site. If you're a nerd, you love working with people, and you want to build your business without giving up your, your independence, I want you to call... Actually, visit IWantToBeANerd.com. You can register for a nerds-only meeting in your area right now. IWantToBeANerd.com. We thank them so much for their support of the uh, Security Now program. As, as nerds ourselves, we can dig them. Nerds on site. Is that a URL that they, that they created for us for their sponsorship? Oh, I don't know. I, yeah. I like it. Why? I haven't seen it lately. Has it say yeah. uh, Security Now on it? I don't know. No, I just I haven't gone there for a while either. But I, you know, I would think that their normal corporate site is, of course, oh nerds yeah, on no, site. That, yeah, that's yes, no, you're right. I think this is for you're exactly right. You go to nerds on site, not I want to be a nerd, but I want to be a nerd's where you sign up and register. Right. I think that does in fact track you over probably to their to their other nerds on site. I would think they do have on the front page though their video with uh, you, their coffee with Steve Gibson. Still there? Oh yeah, still there. Oh, cool. That's perennial. It's <laughs> getting kind of old. Not at all. <laughs> you can also uh, they see the Nerdmobile in the uh, at play in, in the U.S., South Africa, and Canada. Um, this is it's actually kind of a fun site. I highly I highly recommend. I'll show oh, you. They're give definitely you, good. Give you a little shot of them, and then videos of people who are working with nerds on site, so you can get an idea of what what they can uh, what they can do for you. It's really the, the website is the best place to go. I can't I can't in a, in a minute explain the business very well but they can they can tell you and yeah there's a great video of you that was fun i think you had that a good time with fun. him yeah yeah so let's uh i guess get the uh, news and errata out of the way and then yeah 
Oh, out of the first, way, Leo. First, let me get the first. Let me get the box major, over your face out of the way. Okay, now this is, <laughs> this is a major feature of our podcast. Out of the Everything. way. That's this is what people tune in for. Everyone looks forward to <laughs> what new nightmares have have surfaced in you know in the last <sighs> week. And in this case, we of course we are just past the second Tuesday of the month. So Microsoft has dropped another load of bits on us. Yes. Um. There. Oh, you know, and I I meant to. I did the, the the update specifically so that I could do MRT and see confirm that it did say February. And there, yep, sure enough, MRT. I did MRT from the start run dialog, and up comes Microsoft Windows malicious software removal tool February two thousand nine. Excellent. Confirming Excellent. that uh, all the update happened, and I do have the most recent version of that. Um, and of course, it would have done a quick scan after the reboot, and then you can optionally do the deep scan and go away for a long time. Actually, you have to go away for a long time when you download this month's update. <laughs> Is it that big, really? Oh my God! Um, well, first of all, the the big bad news was that IE seven has a a a critical um, problem. That affects XP and Vista, but not IE five or six. So if you're using IE five or six, you don't have a problem. If you are using, if you are now up to IE seven, which of course is the current browser, and they've got eight in beta, if you're up to IE seven, then there is a um, just by going to a site that's malicious, you can have your machine compromised. Or since Outlook and Outlook Express by default use the IE viewer, if you click on a link in email that you receive, that can do the deed as well. So there were um, uh, a number of critical problems that were fixed um, in IE7. So that's been fixed. Um, There is a new version of the MSRT, as I mentioned, and now it's about, Little little less than ten megs, about nine point eight megs. Um, then there was just this cumulative security update to IE seven is what they called it. That was eight point six. There's a uh, an update roll up for ActiveX kill bits. And remember from us having discussed that before, the kill bits are a, a feature that Microsoft added to prevent ActiveX controls from running in IE right. because. That's one of the major exploit vectors is IE. You're able to script a page in IE that invokes ActiveX controls, and they could be any ActiveX controls in the system, even those for which it makes no sense to run them on a web page, which has been a source of many vulnerabilities and security problems in the past. So Microsoft is is now doing a, a continually better job of deliberately setting kill bits, as they're called, for ActiveX controls that should not be allowed to run under an IE context or by an IE, you know, by a web page, because it just makes no sense to do that. So, so that's been updated. There were, um, I'm still using Office 2003, so I can't speak to what may have happened with, with 2007. But for me, uh, there were two updates that affected uh, Office 2003. Then the big mother was a a .NET framework update, and it's 250 megs. Oh, please. So now, it's is one this of those... required? Because .NET didn't used to be 
required, right? I mean, well, and it's technically it's still not, but it's one of those things where that you'll run across applications and it's going to be increasingly the case in the future where they say requires the .NET platform. And, um, and so there's, you know, there, we're now at 3.5 is the current version of .NET. And so the, so this was the .NET framework 3.5 service pack one and the .NET framework 3.5. Five family update, whatever that is. But to get to, together, they were 250 megs. You know, they downloaded at no great speed, and then took forever to install. What did so people? This is one, they they couldn't have done this in, until everybody. I mean, had broadband. What did people? You know, yes. Fifty seven percent of the nation has broadband at home, but that means. That there are twenty percent or something that that don't have high speed internet. Can you imagine uh, what do they with do a, with a modem? What do they do? Yeah, every you know, every four weeks, gulp. Here comes another one. So cumulatively, so, this is probably almost a third of a gigabyte download from Microsoft. Yeah, and you're right. Their you're bandwidth right. bill must be uh, astronomical. Yeah, I hope they're yeah. using. So, I hope they're using P two P. Now somebody's laughing at me because I said. 57% and 20%. But remember, a lot of people aren't online at all. So that's where that number comes from. And, and actually, you know, I think dial-up is only 14%. They're not listening to us either, Leo. Yeah, that's right. Cannot <laughs> reach, we cannot reach them. Well, we make a 16 kilobit version for dial-up, people. We do. <laughs> Bandwidth impaired, as yeah, you so delicately yes. put it. Yes. <laughs> that, I just read a stat that's about 14% of the population now. But those people are out of luck. They're not going to be updating. Yeah. Well, they also don't have security problems, do they? Well, do they? I don't know. Not if they're offline, as long as they lock well, their door. if they have dial-up and they are surfing to these malware oh, 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 sites, I you see. bet they I, have security. I thought you meant completely yeah. offline. Oh, no. The, the, what, is, what, what does that leave uh, left? The 30% who don't have, are not online at all. Yeah. Not 30%, 20% are not online online. Those, those people, we don't have to worry about that. Well, we've also had a, um, uh, a Firefox and Thunderbird update, and SeaMonkey for that for that. Um, I like Sea Monkey. Uh, yeah, Mozilla. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Firefox needs to be at three point zero point six, so you'll want to make sure that you got that. And Thunderbird needs to be at two point zero point zero point two one, and that fixed six flaws, some of which were critical. Meaning that even in the in the Mozilla parlance, uh, you know, doing something innocently can cause your system to be remotely compromised, a remote code exploit. So you want to make sure that you're updated there. And and I, I picked up on another little thing that I thought I would just mention. It's sort of obscure, but you know, VNC is is a remote desktop application that I know many people use and probably many of our listeners. Oh yeah. There's a client side vulnerability in both Ultra VNC and Tight VNC, which are the probably the top two most popular versions of VNC, such that if you went to a malicious server, which I think is unlikely because normally you're going to your own server, but if you if a, if a VNC client for whatever reason were to connect to a server that was misbehaving. Um, there is a way that such a malicious server can take over your machine remotely. So again, I, I think it's unlikely to happen. Normally, VNC users have like, you know, they're running the server on their system at home so that they're able to, if they're out 
you know, roaming around, they're able to connect to their desktop at home. So, you know, which is obviously a server you trust because it's yours. But uh, I just wanted to bring it up to let people know um, if they're running Ultra VNC, you want to be at version 1.0.5.4. And if you're running Type VNC, you want to be at 1.3.10. Okay. To be current there. Got it. And lastly, sort of another uh, obscure, but again, the most popular one of its class, there's, there's a, a download manager called Free Download Manager, FDM. And it has a remote execution vulnerability such that if you were to go, if you were to download a file using Free Download Manager from a malicious download site, it can take over your computer. So I think that's not quite as obscure. That's something anyone using FDM, the Free Download Manager, would definitely want to to know about and and update themselves to the latest version to avoid this because it seems to me it's rather common that you might be, you know, going to a site that you don't know you should not trust and say, oh, I'm going to grab this file and bang, get your machine taken over. Yeah, I had download them all on my, which is a Firefox plugin, uh, because I was trying to download a large file and never could, and I put it on there. And I noticed it was, it was, it was really trying to, wanted to download everything from a page. And I thought, you know, I don't feel right about this. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> It, it was too easy to download a bunch of stuff. So I just, I took it off. I said, you know, I think it really should be that I explicitly say I want this. File. Oh, yes, Leo. Yes, I'm, yes. <laughs> I'm sure yes. that's the case. Yes. yes. Um, and uh, in interesting news relating to Windows 7, I know that you and Paul are talking about it a lot. I've, I've, been, listen, I've been listening to you guys talk about it. And of course, the controversial, from, from my standpoint, security aspect of of the reduced strength of UAC, the the user account control that we covered in detail when it first appeared in in Vista, um, Microsoft softened the UAC operation so that it wasn't popping up so much. And what they attempted to do in Windows 7 beta. We should remind ourselves that it's beta. And by the way, there will be another one. This that was not the last one. Um, and so it's a good thing they didn't release well, it already. It, there'll be a uh, one more uh, RTM. I mean, this is really right. Pretty much it. But they're changing the functionality of they're UAC. Turning up that UAC, which is really good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because they 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 unfortunately they turned it down too far. There are now proof of concept code on the net, which is able to disable UAC. It's essentially it's sort of scripting code that scripts the actions that a user would perform in going into the control panel and using the UAC control in the control panel to to turn off UAC. And so Microsoft said, uh, "Whoops, uh, that's not what we intended." Of course. And so what they're doing is they're they're still going to keep UAC less noisy, at which you know people really want. However, what they're doing is they're they're specifically and explicitly protecting that particular attack vector. That is, it, it will be it will they're protecting the control panel interface to UAC um, with a much more by using a, well, a much a higher yes by using a higher privilege process and they're adding one more thing that they didn't have, which is. I mean, in, again, in retrospect, like so many of these simple security mistakes, it makes a lot of sense. And that is, if the 
the, if the strength or configuration of UAC is changed, it absolutely requires manual user confirmation, yes. Yes. which it didn't before. That will be in, in the next release of Windows. See, that's the way to handle this. Uh, and you could even use that lower setting as long as it said anytime anybody wants to change this setting, you've got to enter yes. your, you know, your password or you're going exactly. to confirm it. And so, you know, I mean, so that's a case where I think even if you're running as admin, you should have to enter your password. Yes. Yes. For something that is that, that is that critical, is yeah. security based and has a global effect. You know, you absolutely need to prove that you are who you say you are. Yeah. And it's not something you, that you'd be doing often. You would not be changing the level of UAC operation that often. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And then the last little bit of security news was a little um, embarrassment that Kaspersky uh, encountered I saw that. Uh, for about 10 days. Um, their, one of their main corporate databases was exposed through an SQL, a SQL injection attack. And we've, we did a, a podcast some time ago that explained exactly what SQL injection attacks are and how they work. Um, so essentially they had their database exposed, hanging out on the network out on the internet and so there were bad guys who were able to access their database and it was finally those bad guys after a week and a half who said uh by the way you might want to fix that hmm. so uh the the kaspersky stated that that and this was corporate this was their their user i mean their customer database that was exposed kaspersky said that that confidential data was not taken or lost or exposed. And so, you know, certainly, you know, that's good news. Kind of so embarrassing, have, though, when that happens to a security company. Oh, yes, <laughs> <You know>? indeed. <laughs> that's kind of not what you want to have happen. And we have some interesting news from our friends at Ubico. Um, they've got a new wiki up on their site and uh, are announcing on, on their site the Yuba King Awards. Ah. The Yuba King Awards are essentially um, are are starting now. Um, they are the, the idea is to find the best applications and ideas or online services or developer tools or, or pretty much anything involving the Yuba Key. Um, anyone who contributes on the wiki which is where these these awards will be or the submissions will 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 be made and there's a whole bunch of categories um for them um will will be anyone who who submits will get three free yuba keys oh wow well but the the winner the, the, the three winners will be chosen yeah. the uh, 50% of the choosing comes from participants in the wiki itself the other 50 percent comes from a jury that i am leading <laughs> cool um for for yubikey applications of and uh, of any sort um we will feature those three winners on an episode of security now they will receive five special edition yubikeys that nobody else in the world will ever be able to get so you know, very special YubiKeys. And this is something that I discussed with Stina 
um, when she was out visiting. You remember many months mm-hmm, ago, mm-hmm. she was down in San Diego and swung by Starbucks and had coffee with me for an hour or so in the morning. And we were discussing this, her notion of a Yuba King Award. And she's like, you know, what can we give people? And I said, how about something, you know, absolutely special that no one can ever get any other way? And she says, oh, I like that idea. So special edition Yuba Keys. And finally, the three winners get to attend this year's RSA security conference with Yubico paying their travel, hotel expenses, and conference fees. Wow. That's pretty cool. So it's going to be very neat. That's so pretty cool. The, the challenge is up. If you go to yubico.com, you can click the. There's many ways to get at the wiki, but you can click the developers uh, menu at the top of the screen, and then you'll you'll see the wiki there. Also, for any YubiKey owners, um, their wiki is a really nice example of using the YubiKey. That is, uh, it's easy to join. Uh, I did it a few hours ago. Uh, you 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 say you know sign up. And it asks you for your handle. You are never asked for a um, a password because you don't need one. You are a YubiKey right, owner, right? Right. And, right. and they're doing all the online authentication. So, so it's it's really it's an interesting feeling signing up for something that is more secure than any sign up you've ever done before. Because you're using the YubiKey and in its one-time password mode with online authentication, yet it's so simple because you just you put in your handle and then you touch the little button and it it's funny too. You don't even have to click like log me in because the YubiKey logs you in. I mean it it enters it the page sees you enter the key and says okay let's you know authenticate and log the person in. Anyway, it's it's sort of a neat experience. If you're if you're anyone listening to this who has a YubiKey, I would urge you to uh, to go try that experience if you haven't before of like you know a really well integrated YubiKey logon experience uh, using the wiki that's now at yubico.com. I, um, I now have to get more YubiKeys. <laughs> I only have one. <laughs> one is not enough. I need many YubiKeys. Well, I think we, we've, we've stated that two, one that is one in static, static, yeah. Yeah, yeah. static password mode yeah. and one that is in, is, is in its original one-time password mode where it's changing every time. And then you've sort of got your bases covered. And it would be nice, you know, to have one YubiKey that could do both. Do you know a lot of people? Now, if you get the one that's not in static mode, it's going to Yubico's servers and. Uh, and using the Yubico server. But are people starting to implement their own uh, YubiKey uh, server? Because ultimately that's what you want to do, right? Like Bank of America would have its own key server. Correct. And for example, um, uh, well, okay, the, the, the problem with your own key server is that Bank of America would then need to know what the, what the secret AES key was inside your YubiKey. But that's what they do with those cards, the VeriSign cards or the footballs that uh, are sent out by PayPal, right? That's how that works. Except that they're all using VeriSign as their back end. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's normal to use a third-party back end. Exactly. Oh, okay. So having Yubico be the back end is not a problem. Exactly. I see. Yes, yes, yes. And so, so for example, in my own forthcoming... uh, V- VPN product that we've talked about before, CryptoLink. Right. I'll I'll allow a user to go to do it either way. 
they could, for example, when they're out, out roaming around and want to authenticate, actually three ways, and want to authenticate, they could use static password mode for if that's the way their YubiKey was set up, or they could they could either have the the CryptoLink endpoint that they're connecting to that would be in this case acting as as a server. They could have it know the YubiKey algorithm, which you know is publicly known, and and have it also know the private key, which would require that they have sort of like privatized their key. It would no longer then work with with other backend services because they would have changed their key in order for CryptoLink to know it. Or they could just have CryptoLink use Yubico as as the as the third party authenticator for their key, depending upon, you know, how they want to operate. So, so you know so all possible. And, and, and we and Okay, forgive me for asking a. Mm, I don't want to insult Stina, but we trust Yubico. I mean, it's not oh, like absolutely. VeriSign. I mean, VeriSign, everybody knows VeriSign, but Yubico, maybe people don't know Yubico so well. But does it matter? Well, I mean, that's. I mean, I absolutely trust them. Of course, but, you do. You you work. But remember with them. that one of my acronyms, trust which is no which one, yes. fundamental yes. to yes. what yes. I'm doing with CryptoLink, exactly, right. is trust no one, and right. no one means no one. Right. And so I wanted to provide a, a mode where uh, for VPN authentication where there was nobody involved, right. except you, except equipment you own, your client and your server, yet still give you the benefit of one-time password, right. you know, super strong, non-keystroke recordable sort of logon. Well, that requires that you then take your key, your key algorithm private so that, so that without using a third-party backend, you're able to authenticate. But, you know, there is the, the extremely useful mode, for example, of using OpenID, where you really, you inherently need to trust a third party to do your authentication. What is the, okay, let's say that somebody, not Yubico, but somebody like Yubico was doing this and they weren't trustworthy. What would be, uh, would it be a man in the middle attack? What would the threat be? Okay, the the threat would be that, that... Um, they would know your password, I guess. Um, but they wouldn't know your well, password. They'd only know one part of it because you're using multi-factor authentication. Anyone who could authenticate, would, by definition, knows the internal state of your key, the whole internal state. Right. They know the value of the counters, which are incrementing, and they know the secret key, which is... Which is apply, which those counters are applied against in order to generate the the result. So anyone who anyone who had that could impersonate your use of that key. So if they knew, for example, your username and a site where you are, where you authenticate, they could generate the next series of of logins into the future for your key now at the same time you know if they're the people doing the authentication they don't really need to do that they just have to say you know i mean they could they could log in as you see the request come back to them and say oh yeah that's fine right so i mean so so it you know you are you are definitely trusting 
an authenticating agent significantly. Okay. You're really you're 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 trusting their complete disinterest in in, your in stuff. having <laughs> in, exactly in yeah. having any reason right. for impersonating you. And of course, you know, in, in the case of a of a real crypto company, their entire reputation. Oh is yeah, on the yeah, line. yeah. And please, I nobody am I in any way impugning a Yubico, but. This is what we talk about. I mean, is what is the risk of trusting somebody? And yes, you know, I mean, you know, you're, you're exactly right, Leo. I mean, the you know, everything about security is understanding what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which is the threat model. What right. well, you know, what does it mean to you know to have what type of vulnerability and right. what is the exposure? So right. it's absolutely useful to to discuss that. Okay. Um. Also, you and I were talking before we recorded, but I wanted just to mention I have here in my notes, the Kindle 2 has been announced by Amazon. And guess who's ordered Kindle 2s? <laughs> just take you a wild I, guess. You and I were first in line. <laughs> yes. Because, um, you know, you can't have too many Kindles. You yeah, know, I no. have two Sony ebook readers, which I don't use anymore. I have two also. I got the 500 and the 505. Me, me too. And I yep. bought the Kindle. And I, but we use the Kindle. We love the Kindle. It's the one. It is. I mean, it absolutely is the one. But what, my we don't, what, what we've never liked is the form factor. It's ugly. It's too easy to turn pages. I've never been happy with it. This might improve that. Well, um, it's what I, what I love about this one is it is thinner. And even though the existing Kindle is not that thick... You know, it is funky looking. Um, so this one is is classy looking. They pulled the, the the page turns away from the corners, so now you're able to like slip the Kindle into a number of different cases that use little you know corner elastic straps straps in order to in order to to hold it in. You know, their their mechanism for holding the first Kindle into the little binder was really strange. It's you know if if you, you I mean it was kind of clever. But it didn't work very well, so it was often falling out by itself. Yeah, I only is, used it when I was going to throw my Kindle into a briefcase, and I wanted a little extra protection. For yeah, it. the rest yeah. of the time, right now, it's sitting on my bedside table, and it's just yeah, you know, and exactly, and it's it the it was like from a material that didn't want to fold back nicely. I didn't so even know what it was. It was like re, it was pressed paper or something, some weird material. Yeah, it was not not good. And in fact, this new Kindle does not come with one. There is no, no. cover that provided by Amazon. If you want one, you've got to well, purchase one from from a number of different okay. third parties. So they don't come with a cover at all. They offer their own leather cover, which is thirty bucks. I bought, you know, and then I looked at there's a very fancy leather cover for hundred bucks. Cole Han, yeah. Cole Han has like five or six different versions of those. But I bought the nylon one that had. Yeah, or do you, do you mean the neoprene one? Yeah. Yes, I, I I did also because I think that would you know and be, it said it has protection for the screen and stuff. So yep, we'll give you a yep. review. So so um the anyway. So you and I both have those. ours coming um, before the end of February. Yep, and uh, I I do like the fact. I mean, I'm encouraged by the idea that it's 16 levels of gray because that would allow them to do a little bit better anti-aliasing and to show images, you know, photos and things better. So it's uh, a be it's a better screen than the old one. It's a better screen. Oh, it's faster page turn. Uh, they okay. did away with that funky, weird LCD stripe along the sides, you know, where you have the little roller ball and the, in order to do, like do selections. Yeah, I'm a little concerned because I used that. I don't know how what, they have a five-way thumb thing now, right? Well, they have a joystick. It's, joystick. you know, it, it's like left, right, up, down. And so they, they move a cur an on-screen cursor around. So they must have improved the, you know, like the real-time refreshability of right. the screen in order to like move 
an e-ink object around the screen. Right. And, and the, uh, the, the, they also increase the battery life. They're saying now that if you leave the cell modem on all the time, you can get four days of, of use with the cell modem on 24 seven. Um, and if you turn it off, as I, I only turn it on in order to like, you know, refresh and update magazines and newspapers and things in like for a few minutes in the morning, then you can get as much as two weeks of life out of it, which is pretty much what I get now. So I guess, I mean, it's obviously, you know, how many hours per day. Yeah, they, measure, they measure it by page turns, not by, uh, by time so much. Right. Because it doesn't use any power until you change the page. Although right. it does use power with that wireless thing. And that's the, yeah, I, I like you. I turn that off, uh, except when I want to download something. And so they've, they've moved that control into the UI. Right now on the first Kindle, there were two switches, I one like for that. main power and one for Wi-Fi. I mean, one, one, one for cell modem. And uh, now it's in the UI. So that'll be interesting to see how that is. It'd be nice if you could just say, turn on until you've checked and then turn yourself off. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really interested to see, you know, what other, you know, tunings and tweakings they have done to the mm-hmm. UI. But it does look like a nicer, a nicer solution. The, the problem remains the number one problem, as you and I were discussing before we began recording, is the price. At $359, it's not something that people can casually purchase, you know. And, and as you said, if it got down to 200 you know, $199, and, and I said 99 then, um, you know, then it would really, you know, people wouldn't just be knocked over. But when, you know, people admire it when I'm in a restaurant reading and and then, you know, it's like, oh, my God, they want, they want to see it and they love it. And they like they read a lot. And then and I tell, you know, it's three hundred fifty nine dollars. Like, whoa, yeah, sticker shock. Yeah. And you do save money on the books, but not a lot of money. This, the best sellers are ten bucks. Yeah, and I'm finding some of the higher end technical books very are still, expensive. you know, forty five dollars. Yeah, it's like, wow, yeah. you know, it's like what for some bits? There's no reason. That's outrageous. And yeah, yeah. Now, then, there's one other feature you didn't mention. It can read to you. Oh yes, yes, yes. That'll be interesting to see, how, you know, how that works and and what kind of well, what the quality is of that. They must have put you a know. much better processor in this thing. If so, that's not using that much power. But yeah. you're right. I mean, you're right. I mean, turning te- doing text, text to speech, speech is yeah. not nearly as simple as you know just decompressing text onto a page. So but you're right. So, so the the idea is you're reading along and you're going to get in the car. You're going to go to work or whatever. You plug it into your your stereo in your car and it says and now say read to me and you continue to read. I think that's really cool. I think if it works, it could be very nice. But you're right. So like you're in the middle of a book and it's like now you you're no longer able to to read visually. So, you you know, it reads to you. It it does text to speech built in. It'll take some getting used to because computer text to speech is never quite as good as, say, somebody on audible dot com. But handy to have. Yeah. Especially if you're reading uh, the newspaper, you know, I get the times on there and, uh, you know, what a great way to just keep up to date. I'm very curious. Well, you know, that's why. You buy it because you're into it. I buy it because I have to review. I, I really want to review it for people. That's just an excuse for you, Leo. <laughs> That's why I got in this uh, business. Don't give me that. This is why. Of course, it's an. I, I acknowledge that, but it's the whole reason that 25 years ago I got into this business uh, is so that I could get this stuff for free. Or and now I don't get it for free. I buy it, but so that I'd have an excuse, you know, a way to keep up with this stuff. When I first started writing for uh, in 1978, when I started writing for computer magazines. It was just a way of getting free software. 
And I've never stopped, really. It's really just more well, ways to get stuff. At least you're able to write it off. You know, I oh, mean, yeah, it is a business, it's a yeah. business expense. Yeah. So it's like, and you can tell your, your wife, hey, honey, I had to buy this. Well, and I admit, I mean, I could go to Amazon and say, I'd like to review unit. That's what Andy Donatko does. But see, I don't like to send the thing back after two weeks. Nope, exactly. I want to keep it. <laughs> so yeah, I have to buy exactly. it. <laughs> They're never getting mine back. <laughs> All and right. Then, my last little bit is we are beginning to see ultra capacitors in consumer products. Oh, you're an, kidding. This is the thing a, we were talking about, the e-store thing. Put in, put in SNP URL, S-N-I-P-U-R-L.com, okay. SNP URL.com yep. slash ultra cap one. I decided I would start numbering these because, uh, of course, now other people could take them, but... Uh, but uh, this is uh, the first example of an ultra cap base. This is this is Coleman has a ultra capacitor based electric screwdriver, which charges in 90 seconds. <gasps> so you stick it on the base. The little meter goes. Oh, and nine, my God. Isn't that cool? No electrochemical, no batteries to change, no batteries to age and get old you you use it you know being an electric screwdriver until it begins to slow down then you stick its rear end into the charger you know watch the little meter go back up and in 90 seconds it's 100 percent full charge and if you're in a hurry you can just you know stick it in for 15 seconds and get proportionally that much charge coleman's calling it flash cell yep so this isn't the e-store ultra capacitor no, this is not theirs. There are some other ultra capacitors. And in fact, there's also a tactical flashlight, but it's still pre-order, not yet available. So I am not talking about that yet. But there is there is also a, a very nice looking, but much more expensive. I think I think this is $80, isn't it? Yeah, $79.99. Now, I wonder how long it will go for. On that charge, they don't. Um, good, good question. You know, don't if it, know if it could. You could charge it ninety seconds, and it runs for ninety seconds. That's not so hot. That's not so exciting. <laughs> yeah, there, there. You just want to put a crank on the side of it and say, "Okay, I'm just going to yeah. go back to the old-fashioned way." <laughs> but that is one of the problems with uh, cordless screwdrivers. Frequently, is that it runs down. I have one that has two batteries, so you swap the other right. battery, and it's okay. I'm reading the copy here. It's powered by the new supercapacitor technology. With this new technology, you can recharge, discharge 50,000 times. It'll last a lifetime. But what they don't say, and I've got to find out, is... How many screws you can screw How many in. screws you can screw. 5.4 volts, 220 RPM, 35-pound-inch torque. They don't say anywhere how much you get per charge, and that's what I'd really like to know. Very interesting, though. Yep. Well, we, we, I will be keeping an eye on that and let our listeners know as supercapacitors continue to emerge. Yeah. Very cool. Meanwhile, I've got a great, short, fun little Spinrite success story to share. Um, David looks like Hoffline, um, and I'll spell that for Elaine for, the, for, her, for her transcript um, in my communication to her. He wrote that his computer would not reboot, not even in safe mode. He said an attempted system repair revealed that Windows did not recognize the partition type. Ugh. I hate when that happens. Yep. Everybody hates when that happens. Well, I don't think there's anybody who likes when that happens. And it says, would you like to format or eject? I mean, it's, oh, yes. Know, that's Let's it. see. A or B. <laughs> uh, 
How about Spinrite instead? Yep. So he says, I went to my wife's computer and bought Spinrite since everyone raves, uh, raves about it on Twit. After an hour of running, Spinrite detected a sector that it could not repair, mm. but brought back most of it, and that was enough. Windows rebooted, did its disk check, and fixed a lot of indexes, etc., and rebooted again. All is as good as new now. This disk, this disk had all of my documents Whoa. for the past 20 years, passwords to everything, and, well, the loss would have been awful for me. Mm. I set my new Acronis scheduler to do weekly full image backups. And then signed David Hofline, new Spinrite customer. So what, now that actually raises an interesting question. When it can't recover the whole sector, does it recover part of the data? Oh yeah, that's one of the, as far as I know, that makes Spinrite completely unique among any recovery utility ever written, is that Spinrite is able to, I mean, it, 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 tries like crazy to to read the sector. It, it drops into something called Dynastat mode, which annoys some people because it can take so long because Spinrite, essentially, it takes 2,000 samples of, of the sector. But in doing that, it's, it's actually reading the unreadable data. And it does an analysis of it working to determine where and what the region it cannot read contains. And very often during that time, it gets just enough to perform a correction, which allows it to recover all of the data and then work with the drive to get rid of this bad sector and swap a good one in in place of it. Then it writes the data that it was able to recover back into the sector. So it's hit or miss whether that'll be enough to say, tell Windows your partition is okay, but... Well, but no, but here's the other thing is that remember a sector is 4096 bits. It's 512 bytes, 4096 bits. It um only about 11 or 12 bad bits in a row will prevent error correction from figuring out what they are. That's that's less than 2 bytes. So so that's enough bits to spoil the entire sector. Normally, that's it. Except Spinrite is definitely able to give you the rest of them. And so you're able to, for example, out of 4,096 bits, you can get 4,080 bits correctly. Oh, interesting. And it's very often, for example, if that was if that was a directory sector or or even, you know, like a a, uh, part of the boot system, it might be that that those two bytes you can live without literally and Spinrite will get the rest of them for you, make the sector readable as is, whereas before it was completely unreadable, it will be readable with the caveat that, okay, we lost two bytes, but you got all 510 other bytes. And and oftentimes, that's where the miracles that Spinrite performs comes from. Amazing. That's really, and yes, yeah, so it's that error correction that's really, once you get the sector recovered, the error correction. Well, and the really fact that Spinrite will give you this, the data it could read, right. even tolerating the fact that it couldn't read at all. Right. Amazing. And, and very often that, that, that's, that's enough. enough gain to yeah. make a difference. Hey, uh, me, who else in our chat room uh, referred uh, me to a Popular Mechanics review of that Coleman screwdriver? And Popular Mechanics ah. says, yes, it really does charge in 90 seconds and you get about 30 minutes of screwing. Ah, so very that, nice. that's sufficient. I mean, if, if you, you know, use it for 30 minutes and now it dies and you put it in there and a minute and a half later, you're ready to go again. That's well, plenty. And, 
And I'll tell you, um, I uh, do you have Makita? Uh, uh, mine is a Black and Decker, I think. Okay, I, I I've got two Makitas, and the the problem with them is the normal self discharge. You know, I don't use them very often, so they're sitting in the garage most of the time. When I do need it, I, I'd like to have it now. And so, so, you know, but the batteries are always discharged. So I always have to anticipate my need or wait around for them to get a charge. The beauty of this is, first of all, ultra capacitors have an extremely low self discharge rate. So if you left, if you, if you, when you were done using it, you, you left it on its charger for 90 seconds before putting it away. Chances are it's still going to have a, a fully useful charge when you grab it. Um, but even if, you ended up leaving it discharged when you want to use yeah. it. You only need to wait a minute and a half. I love that. And you've got a 30-minute charge now. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually cool. very tempted to buy one of these, I have to say. It's, that's really cool. Just to have the technology. Yeah. 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 And, and the fact that the batteries never wear out is a pretty, never. pretty good thing, too. Yep. All right. We are going to take a break. Come back. We're going to talk about modes of encryption, kind of more um, uh, ground setting for a foundation laying foundation laying for our SSL segment, which uh, which is going to come up in a couple of episodes. I do want to mention our good friends at uh, Citrix. They're the folks who do go to meeting. You just heard that uh, security issue with VNC. Uh, There are lots of uh, remote access products out there uh, and a lot of ways to do it. Um, but not all of them are made equal. And uh, I have to say, Citrix knows how to do it. I don't. I have not heard of one secure, I'll have to look back, but I have not heard of one security issue with them. Uh, they don't use the remote protocol layer that Windows uses, which has many holes in it. Uh, they're not using VNC. They're using their own stuff. Stuff which, by the way, Microsoft even uses. It's great. They. Uh, this is the foundation for GoToMeeting. This is the product that I use when I w- want to have a kind of an effective conference call without a lot of travel. You know, nowadays, who can afford to, who wants to travel, fly all over the country for meetings or, uh, you know, drive across town for meetings? If if you're in sales, if you work with other people, if you're trained, you may feel like, I have to do that. Well, you don't because GoToMeeting allows you to take what would be normally a kind of a, a kind of bland conference call and make it interactive, make it visual, make it real. Here's how it works. You can do it ahead of time. You just a couple of clicks of the mouse, you set up the meeting. Or you do it uh, even while you're on the phone with somebody. You say, hey, go to gotomeeting.com. This is the first thing. They have, because you're going through gotomeeting.com, you're absolutely secure. It's it's using SSL. It's very secure. So you go to gotomeeting.com. They, they log in there. They don't have to have an account. They don't have to install any software. They just enter the meeting ID. And now they're seeing your screen completely securely. Without any issues of firewalls or routers, it just it's amazing stuff. Uh, then you can show them your PowerPoint, or you can work together on a document. Uh, I've I've done it for rehearsing speeches. It's pretty amazing. You can meet with anybody anywhere as many times as you want for one low as long as you want for one low monthly rate. It's very affordable. But I'm gonna try I'll give you a chance to try it free because I you know we we tell all our advertisers best way is to trust our audience. They're smart. Just let them try it. That's all they want. Let me try it for a month. And if it works for me, then it's a product I'll use. So we've arranged a 30-day unlimited trial. All you have to do is go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. And and within a minute or two, before the show's over, you could do it and be signed up. It's very simple. And then try it with your clients. Clients love this. By the way, built-in VoIP and free conference calling 
So you'll, you'll probably save money right away. I mean, instantly, even if you didn't have a lot of travel planned. Go to meeting.com slash security now. I want you to give them a try today. Let them know you heard it on security now. Uh, they're very supportive of the show. They know that you're you're the audience. You're the audience they want. They they know how smart you are and how discerning you are, and that once you've tried this, you'll be customers for life. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now program. So let's get the foundations uh, down of encryption technology. What do we need to know, Steve Gibson, to go forward here? Okay. Um, we've discussed at length this, the concept of symmetric and asymmetric ciphers. A, an asymmetric cipher, also sometimes called public key encryption, is one where you, you used one key to encrypt and the other key to decrypt. Which is a wonderful technology. I have a, if you go to my website, you can download my key. And people will say, well, wait a minute, I'm downloading your, your PGP key? No, that's the public key. Anybody can have that. Right. It, 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 it's, the, it's the key of the key pair that you chose to make public. And, and again, it's what, what, one of the things that's very cool about this is that somebody could use it to decrypt something that you encrypted with your private key, right. meaning the one that you have not disclosed, or they could use your public key to encrypt something that they would know only you could decrypt. So it works, it works both ways. If, if somebody used your public key to decrypt something, they know that it came from you right. because only, only you could encrypt something that your public key could decrypt using your private key and vice versa. So it's handy. The problem is it's extremely computationally intensive. Uh, the keys are long. They need to be long. They're like 10,000, I mean, um, 1,024 bits. They're like, they're like 1K bit long or longer, sometimes 2K bits, because the, the algorithm requires that much bit length in order to, to get the, the equivalent security of much shorter keys using symmetric or, or private key encryption as opposed to public key encryption. So that, that, that length requires, and the nature of the public key algorithms requires much more computation. So it's never feasible to encrypt an actual communication with public key crypto. Technically you could, but it would just be, you know, hugely slow. So instead what's done is that a, a random number is picked just out of the air. Any, you know, a big cryptographically strong, really high quality random number. And that is used as the key to a symmetric encryption algorithm. And then that key, only that key is encrypted using the public key technology. So then, so what happens is the encrypted document and the encrypted key are sent to someone and so and they use the public key technology to decrypt the key which they then use with a symmetric key algorithm to decrypt the document isn't that clever it's very clever and in fact what we're going to talk about today is symmetric key algorithms we've talked about 
symmetric key ciphers. And of course, the, the famous one that's become very popular is the, the so-called Rheindahl cipher that, that was chosen as the, um, the advanced encryption standard, the AES cipher, after much competition among many different competing ciphers. And we did a whole episode some time ago on exactly how Rheindahl works. Um, just to refresh people about, in general, how a, the way a symmetric cipher looks from the outside, sort of treating it as a black box, you have some number of bits. You can think of them sort of like signal lines, like, you know, like electrical wires going into this. And they're either, a one, each bit is a one or a zero. And um, older block ciphers had sometimes, for example, 64 bits was popular. The problem was that as computers have gotten stronger, this, the concern has been that there aren't enough combinations of 64 bits to really make the result strong. So modern block ciphers have doubled that to 128 bits. And, and it's important to remember that when we... When we double the number of bits, we're not doubling the number of combinations. We're, 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 every bit we add doubles the number of combinations. So when we go from a 64-bit block to a 128-bit block, we're adding 64 bits, meaning that we're doubling the, and doubling and doubling and doubling the number of combinations 64 times. Wow. So, so the, the, the total number of, of possible combinations is, is, you know, it's computable, but it's really, really huge. It's two to the 64th. It's two to the 64th times more than there were before. Wow. So, so imagine we've got 128 bits going into this black box and 128 bits comes out. So... The idea is, I mean, that's that's the Rheindahl cipher or any similar symmetric cipher. And they these 128 bits are transformed through the algorithm in the cipher into a different 128 bits. And the nature of the it, it's essentially it's a permutation. It's not like one bit goes in and comes out somewhere else. It's that. For example, if you were to change one bit going in, on average, half of the bits coming out would change. And and you never know which half, because if you change a different bit, a different set of bits on average would change. And not always exactly half, but on average, half. And so, or for another, another example of this is if, say that you had all zeros, but then you turned on five different bits going in well you'd end up with about half of the uh, half of ones one bits coming out the point is that this is for any pattern that of of 128 bits you put in you get out a, a completely different specific 128 bits always the same when you put this 128 bits in you get the same 128 bits out given the key because the other input to this black box in addition to the 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 block of data going in that is this block of bits going in and the block of bits coming out the other factor is the key and 
And keys can range basically, um, for example, DES was a very popular the data encryption standard, the, basically the prior main government standard, DES, that used a 56-bit key. And in fact, that was the source of concern over DES was that, gee, you know, when before we had computers or when they were a lot slower, that seemed to be just fine. But 56 bits just doesn't have enough combinations. So, for example, the Rheindahl cipher allows you to, and the AES standard allows you to use a keys of 128 bits, 192 bits or 256 bits, which is just an insanely long key. I mean, already 128 bits is a, a huge amount of combination. So much so, I think I, I think I remember reading that if a if if it took you a second to crack DES with a 56 bit key, it would take something like 142 trillion years mm. with the same amount of processing power to crack it with 128 to crack a cipher with a 128 bit key. So I mean that, that's so that's that's the 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 difference in in key length in terms of just you know the actual number of of possibilities given binary bit length growth it's it's easy to under appreciate what it means to increase the length of these things i mean they these things get stronger exponentially as you increase their length every bit doubling the the, the number of prior combinations so we have this this cipher this this symmetric cipher we put combination of 128 bits in under the influence of a key that's probably going to be 128 bits and out comes a different pattern what's what's cool about this is that it's there's a it's a one for one mapping every 128 bits we put in we get out a different un i mean unrelated 128 bits there's there's no way looking at this to figure out what magic is going on inside this box that gives us the, this result. In other words, it is a pseudo-random output, but it's always the same and it's reversible. So that gets us encryption. So say that we now, the question is, and the real focus of, of what I wanted to explain today was, how do we take that and actually do something useful with it, which is something we haven't really covered explicitly that is, say I've got a document with, you know, multiple pages. How do I take this symmetric cipher, assume that I've got a secret key that I know? That is, we, we talked about how the key can be known. It could have been encrypted with a public key technology so that, so that when I got the key, the document was encrypted and the key was encrypted. I used the public key technology to decrypt the key. So now I've got the key or going in the other direction, say that we have a, a plain text document that is a document not yet encrypted. I use a pseudo random number generator to generate a random 128 bit key. Now that's the key I'm going to use to encrypt the document. And I will use a public key technology to encrypt that key. And when I, when I send it with the document, knowing that, only the person who's got the matching public key to the to my private key that I use to encrypt the 
random key used for the symmetric cipher will be able to do the decryption. So the question is, I've got my 128-bit pseudo-random key, and I've got this cool cipher algorithm, this Rindahl AES or, or you know any other symmetric cipher. Now what do I do? Well, the most obvious thing to do is take bytes of, of the document at a time. 128 bits is 16 bytes. Mm-hmm. Is that right? No. No. Yes. 32. Yes. No, 16. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So th- 32 bytes is 256 mm-hmm. bits, right. so it's 16, 16 bytes. Yep. So I take the first 16 bytes and of the document, and that makes 128 bits, put them into the cipher, and out comes gibberish. I mean, just noise, nonsense, nothing. But I write them down. Then I go to the next 16 characters or 16 bytes of the document, put them into the cipher, and out comes, again, nonsense, gibberish, completely different, given that, I, that, the, that the second set of 16 bytes are different than the first set of 16. So it's just no relationship that I can see between what goes in and what comes out. And then I take the third set of 16 bytes, put it in, and out comes another 128 bits of garbage as far as I can tell, and I proceed. So now, you know, you would think, okay, fine, we've successfully encrypted the document, Um, and in fact, we have. But there is a problem with this that, that that makes the crypto people feel uncomfortable, and that is any time we put in the same 16 bytes, we're going to get out the same... 16 bytes or 128 bits of garbage. Well, in other words, some some e- even though we don't know what the 16 bytes were that we put in, someone looking at the enciphered, the encrypted result could say, "Wait a minute. This is this like here's the same phrase. Here's the same expression." Now, obviously those bytes would need to be aligned on the block boundaries in the same way. But the point is, there, there is some information leakage happening. There is, there is s- something you're able to glean from looking at the pseudo-random noise. Even though it's pseudo-random and it's noise, it's noise with, with the possibility of a pattern. And, and that pattern is, I mean, the pattern reflects one for one a pattern in the plain text, and that's not good. You you know you would say, well, they don't know what the plain text is, but you've you've leaked some information. And for example, in the case of a say that we were instead of encrypting a static document, we were we were encrypting packets, and every packet that was being encrypted was using the same key, which was negotiated once at the beginning of the connection. Well. Now all these packets are going by, and there's things that are known about the unencrypted format of the packet, like, you know, the header of the packet that contains IP and port number and so forth. And so if you had enough samples of these packets, and you know that the key was the same, and you know that, that you know, that because the, the assumption is always that a, an attacker knows everything that is known publicly about the 
the, the, the protocol. They know you're using Rindall. They know you've got 128-bit blocks. They know you've got 128-bit key. The point is that, that in cryptography, you define well what is secret and you define well what is public. What it, what the, and the whole goal is that the only thing we have to keep secret is the key. If we keep the key secret, we can publish everything else that we're doing and and the result is still private. We still have security so so that we we clearly delineate what it is that we're requiring for security. So um so the problem we've got now with this first approach is that that patterns will easily show through our our encryption because we've got a a nice cipher which takes blocks at a time but but because the same input always produces the same output just by looking at the output we can see we can see that what we what we're seeing we've seen before and that's information leakage well so this simple approach is known as electronic codebook or ECB huh. algorithm because think of it is i mean a, a a code book traditionally is is you know takes some input and gives you some output it says you know here's my code book i look up this word and i get this word i look up this word i get this word so that's essentially what this is doing ecb just it takes whatever you give it and it gives you something else but when used as a protocol the problem is that it always gives you the same thing out for the same thing in we need something a little fancier. So the first thing people came up with was something called counter mode, or whereas this first one was electronic codebook, ECB, the uh, counter mode is, is just has the acronym CTR. So, so with counter mode, we operate a little differently. We imagine that we have going into the encryption block instead of actually putting the data to be encrypted into the into the top of this cipher instead we put a counter we have a, a binary counter which starts at some particular value we could start it at zero but but not starting it at zero gives us some additional strength so imagine for now we just will start our counter at zero for the sake of explanation. So this 128-bit counter feeds into our encryption algorithm. Well, we already know that what's going to come out is pseudo-random data. Even though we're putting all zeros in, then, you know, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 1, 0, 0, 0, 0, 1, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 1, 1. You know, we're, we're basically doing a, a simple binary progression feeding into the cipher what comes out is noise thanks to the brilliance of a good symmetric cipher you can even just put simple progressive counts in and what you get out is just static there's no no discernible pattern and remember that it, again this is under the influence of the symmetric key which is also going into this black box so now we've got noise coming out well we've talked a lot about the xor operation 
the exclusive or, where the idea is that essentially one bits in um, in one of the terms of the XOR t- um, serve to invert the 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 bits of the other term of the XOR. In other words, if you were if you were to XOR something with all zeros, you just get it back out again. There's no change. If you were to XOR something with all ones, then all of the input bits would be inverted when they come out. So if you XOR something with random noise, this is one of our, one of our other like cool fundamental principles. You XOR data, good, normal, plain text data with random noise. What you get out is random noise. There, the, the, the XOR, I mean, even though it doesn't seem like you've done enough, to like really encrypt something. If it's random noise, what it's done is it's randomly inverted the bits of your data. And when you do that, there's your, your data's gone. They've, you know, they're, they're just like they were as random as, as if you had random data coming in, in the first place. So, so this, but it's so reversible. Now, That's the key. Exactly. Because exactly. Because since the, the, the bits are being inverted under the influence of the, the, the one of the terms of the XOR. When you do it again, those bits that were inverted get reinverted, which puts them back the way they were. Right. So exactly, it's reversible. Okay, so now we, we have our counter set to zero. We feed that zero value through the cipher under the influence of the key. And out comes 128 bits of noise. We then take the first 16 bytes of our document and XOR them with this first 16 bytes of noise. And we get more noise. Um, but we get special noise because uh, it, it, it encodes, it encrypts the original plain text. Now we increment the counter to one and we feed that through the cipher and get a new 16 bytes of new noise, which we XOR with the second 16 bytes of our document. And now we get a a second block of 16 bytes of noise and we proceed with each 16 bytes at a time with the counter incrementing by one every time. Well, now look like, now look what we've got. We've, 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 we're using our cipher to to turn a sequential count into a keyed sequential system of noise. That is, even though the counter might start at zero and go one, two, three, four, five, under one particular input key, we'll get one series of pseudo-random noise. Under a different input key, we get a completely different series. But unlike electronic codebook mode, notice that even if we gave the same 16 bytes into this system sometime later, the counter is guaranteed to be at a different count because it's counting sequentially. So it won't, and it's 128 bits long. It's not going to repeat, you know, in the lifetime of the universe. So, so that means that even the same data being encrypted 
with the same block alignment will give us a completely different output. We've solved the problem of there being any patterns. That is, we've solved the problem of the same of, of any pattern that exists in the plain text surviving and showing up in our ciphertext. So we've got an improvement. Well, this was better, but there was one next stage that, that the cryptographers decided would make them feel more comfortable because there's still a property that we have which we could improve on, and that is each block stands alone. There is no inter-block influence. That is, for example, nothing that we're encrypting is dependent upon anything that came before. And it would be uh, nicer, even though this seems strong, it would be nicer if, if a change in the in the input text that we're encrypting changed more than just its 16 bytes. Remember, since we're doing this right now, a block at a time, block of 16 bytes at a time, each block is isolated. Well, it'd be nice if changing, if there was like more influence by, with our, our, our plain text. And it turns out it's simple to do that. All we have to do in order to uh, in order to create that is again change our algorithm a little bit we'll we'll step back from this counter mode and imagine that we sort of go back now to this electronic codebook mode remember where we're 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 actually encrypting our data through the block cipher to get our to get our 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 encrypted result now imagine that we take the the encrypted output from the first block and and XOR that with the second block's plain text, the source data, before it, we encrypt it. What that does is that essentially it it takes the that that pseudo random output from the first block of encryption and by XORing it with the second block's input, it completely randomizes it, then encrypts it, giving us our our second block of encrypted data. And we similarly we take that and use it to XOR the the input of the third block and so forth. Well, and this has turned out to be that algorithm is called cipher block chaining or CBC. And it is the one of the most popular encryption protocols because it is very fast. An XOR operation is something computers just do. I mean, they've got instructions built in unless you're a PDP-8. In that case, you don't even have an XOR. But every, every computer built in the last... How do you do an XOR if you don't have an XOR? Can you do it with bit shifting or you can actually simulate it with, with um uh I'm trying to think if the PDP has an or. I know it has an and. Um you but you are able there there is a series of instructions. So you just write the write the macro that does it and use yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
and you know or you know well yeah exactly i was gonna say i i tend to use xor a lot because it's there and it's cool and it's free for like different things but i imagine if you didn't have one you would tend not to use it that much you'd come up with other ways of of, of doing things it's just great that it's reversible like that that's what that's what's cool about it That, that and and it is extremely efficient yeah so so what what the um what the the industry has has settled on for many of its operations is this thing called this algorithm this protocol called cipher block chaining where again you you encrypt the first block of data and you take the result of that and xor it with the second block before you encrypt it and then take the result of that and xor it with the third block before you encrypt it and if you if you if you think about it, you write it down like you know, get a napkin out. That process is reversible. That is, you you can you can if you decrypt the first block, then you get. Um, I'm sorry, you you well, yeah, uh, it, it it is reversible. You take <laughs> I'll take the, your word for it. <laughs> you take the first block of of cipher text yeah. and decrypt it, and but then you take it. And XOR it with the, the, and then you take the second one and decrypt it, and then XOR it with the second. It's it's harder to describe the reverse process, but it's reversible. Right. But one thing we haven't said is, okay, wait a minute, we're XORing each block of plain text before we encrypt it, except the first one. What about the first one? And so we would rather not have that one even always be the same remember that the electronic code book approach which this is this is similar to that where we're just encrypting a block at a time we would rather not even have the first one um not xord so we we introduce something called an initialization vector that we've talked about way way back in the dawn of this podcast the so-called iv because it was used for example in um in uh, various other encryption protocols, and so the the initialization vector is a first. It, it's it's something in addition to the key, which is initially used to XOR the data. And in this case, in in this site, in this particular mode, you'd like to keep that secret because if if you if the an attacker knew what the initialization vector was, well, you might as well not have it. So you you use a the 128-bit key to to key this to key all of these ciphers in this algorithm, and then you have another chunk which is the same length as the block length, which is in this this, this case is also 128 bits, and that's a sort of sort so it forms another portion of your secret, and that is the so-called initialization vector, which is which is used to XOR the first block. And once you've done that. Then you take the output from each successive encryption and XOR the next block's input with that. And and that way, the point of this is by chaining these operations, any change any in any of the in any of the output data is propagated through the entire rest of the document, making this making it it essentially um, completely, you know, you 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 just have more more randomness 
built up and propagating, and that makes the cryptographers happier. Of course it does. And then one interesting thing, and this leads us into our next topic in two weeks, and that is imagine if you didn't care about the output of each of these blocks. You have this CBC, the cipher block chaining, and you don't care about the output of each of these. You merely take it and you chain it to XOR the input. Well, what you end up with at the end is very much like a, a, um, a digest, a hash, because you end up with a final block, which, thanks to this cipher block chaining, is dependent upon all the data that preceded it. And any change in the data changes the final result. And that is the definition of a good cryptographically strong digest or a hash. Well, there you go. And there you go. And notice that it's one which is keyed. That is, it's not like MD5 or SHA1, which are non-keyed hashes, where every time you put the same thing in, you get the same thing out. Uh. In this case, it's a digest which is generated under the influence of a key. So when you change the key, you completely change the result. And we'll talk about why that's important and what that means in two weeks. <laughs> I can see why it would be important, but, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll do, I think I can see why it would be important. Very cool. And, yeah. that, and, that, yeah. and that's where message authentication codes, MACs, come from. Aha. Uh-huh. You know, it's funny. You say we talked about all this before, but it all sounds brand new to me. So it must have gone in one ear and out the other the last well, time. Well, it's complicated stuff. And it really you know, we're, in our, we're in our fourth year, too. So, <laughs> and, and that's why I think that some, some bit of continually bringing some of these old ideas back and refreshing them is also useful, especially when we're going to be, you know, going out and, and pursuing some new territory in, in cryptography. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's tough stuff. But, but it it's makes neat stuff, isn't it? It is. It's very elegant. And yeah. it makes total sense. And without it, I mean, you know, uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we do on the Internet. I mean, that's what no, makes all every- your transactions secure on the Internet. Yes. Everything we do. I mean, you know, encrypted databases, encrypted communications. I mean, it's I don't know where we would be if we didn't if we hadn't come up with this technology, because it, I mean, it's we, we absolutely and utterly depend upon it in order to in order for what is otherwise uncontrolled communication um, to keep it safe. This would be a good one if you wanted to review the transcript to go to the, and I, I think I do, <laughs> <laughs> to go to grc.com. That's Steve's website, Gibson Research Corporation, grc.com. And uh, if you go to grc.com slash security now, all the shows are there. Transcripts, 16 kilobit versions, as we mentioned, for the bandwidth impaired. There's The podcast is there too. You can listen to it over again. And uh, that's a really great resource. Plus, show notes. We've now got show notes on the Twit Wiki too. Although, I I have I wonder what they're gonna what sense they'll make out of this. It'll be very interesting to see. But we certainly have links to all the news stories and everything. And uh, and of course, while you're at grc.com, do not forget that's where you can get spin right. The you know you see why Steve Steve is so good at this kind of stuff. He gets this low level stuff and he loves it and he digs into it. And that's what makes spin right such a great program for disk maintenance and disk recovery grc.com 
And I will remind our listeners that next week is a QA. Oh, yeah. and you want to go to grc.com slash feedback. And by all means, send me your feedback. By all means. Yeah, we'd love to hear your questions. Not just feedback, but questions too. Yeah. All right, Steve. Hey, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. We will be moving forward for a couple more weeks with some some similarly um, propeller-winding um, crypto stuff that I think people are going to find interesting and, I hope, comprehensible. Very good. Steve Gibson, thank you for joining us. All the rest of you, too. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.